0: May it please the court. My name is Joe Hyde. I represent the state in this matter. This case is before the court on defendant's uh, direct appeal from the judgment of judgment of conviction for second-degree murder. Evidence to support an aggressor instruction is not viewed in the light most favorable to the defendant. Um, I believe my colleague has now recognized that. I would Point out that that's a bit different from what defendant said in her opening brief on page 20 when she said. When a court is deciding whether to give an instruction on the aggressor doctrine, the facts must be interpreted in the light most favorable to the defendant. That's- well, you
1: pointed out in your brief that that was not the case and I heard Ms. Ozer say today. That she understands to be the law, so we got it.
0: Okay, understood uh, I would also point this court. To this court's opinion in state fee Lee. Um, which also makes the same point. Uh, when, re- by contrast, when reviewing a trial court's denial of the defendant's request to exclude the aggressor instruction and the jury instruction on self-defense, the appellate court does not consider the evidence in the light most favorable to the defendant. The reason that matters is that a great deal of defendant's argument that this aggressor instruction was erroneous depends on viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to her. Viewing the the evidence in the light most favorable to a party typically means contradictions in the evidence are not considered, that all reasonable inferences are drawn in favor of that party, that evidence that might cut the other way is simply ignored. If we understand that the rule here is that the evidence is not viewed in the light most favorable to the defendant, that means this court has to grapple with some uh, facts that are a bit inconsistent with the argument that the evidence did not support an aggressor instruction. Cannon is the case from our Supreme Court that recognizes that how the victim was shot is relevant to the determination of whether there's evidence that the defendant was the aggressor. I'm reading from page 83 of the Supreme Court's opinion in Cannon the evidence also reflects that the victim was shot from the side and from behind, further supporting the inference that defendant shot the victim only after the victim had quit the argument and was trying to leave. So the fact that a victim has been shot from behind supports an inference that the defendant was the aggressor. But well,
1: Mr. Hyde, can you speak to, I mean, the circumstances that Ms. Ozer has described, you know, has really described here Um, you're in a, you're in a trailer, you're not in a large room. Um, again, as as, um, her client granted the only person. Who was in that room who can tell us, right? Says that he was throwing her around the room. He was physically. Beating her and she was afraid. Given do we just say, hey, he was shot in the back and we're done and we don't consider anything else.
0: No, there are other factors here, your honor, that I think this court is is bound to consider. And if it were simply a matter of the victim having been shot in the back, I think I would have a much harder. Argument to make, but there's more here going on. It wasn't just. That the victim was shot in the back. You also have the circumstance that the victim was shot. Twice and at trial when trial counsel made the argument, made the objection to the aggressor instruction, he actually explicitly conceded that there might have been evidence of excessive force arising from the fact that there was not one shot, but two. So you get a victim who shot twice in the back. In addition to that uh, case, this court's uh, precedent in Presson P-R-E-S-S-O-N, allows a reviewing court to consider the comparative injuries between the victim and the defendant. You've got the police officers here saying that the defendant when she was in in the interview room was not complaining about any pain. and did not appear to be injured. Whereas the victim is lying on the floor with two shots to the back. Another thing to consider is the fact that the defendant was armed and at least at the time that he was shot, the victim was not. So Judge Inman, you're right. If it's merely a circumstance of a victim being shot in the back, Maybe that's not enough on its own, but you've got a number of circumstances here that viewing the evidence objectively, not in the light most favorable to the defendant, add up to an inference that will support the aggressor instruction. You've got the fact that the victim was shot in the back. You've got the fact that the victim was shot more than once. You've got the medical examiner saying that he was shot from more than six inches away, which is a little bit inconsistent with defendant's suggestion that they were hustling in a very small room, she managed to grab the gun. Somehow she reached around and shot him in the back twice from more than six inches away. And then in addition to that-
1: But six inches is, I mean, six inches is, right? Somebody could throw a punch within six inches, right?
0: Yes, Your Honor. Each one of these circumstances on its own is perhaps not enough, but taking the evidence together, considering all the evidence that is inconsistent with defendant's story of what happened in that very little room. There was enough evidence here to support the aggressor instruction.
2: Mr. Hyde, was the weapon that was used a semi-automatic weapon?
0: Uh, That may be your honor. Would
2: that be something that would uh, be more apt to uh, lend credibility to the fact that she could have been the aggressor because she shot more than once or something that could lead to the assumption that it was a semi-automatic and it was reasonable?
0: I don't have any case law on that Your Honor. I, I don't have any precedent pointing one way or the other. I don't know very much about guns myself so I, I'm afraid I can't speak to that. I'd like to say it supports my position but I <laughs> I don't have the law to support it. Um, there is finally one other circumstance and that is uh, a reviewing court is allowed to consider um, the character of the victim in rebutting an inference that the victim was the aggressor. You get both Wendy Hicks and the victim's wife saying that he's not a violent person, that he'd never been violent with them before. Now, there is some violent language, there is some suggestive uh, (laughs) insults that go back and forth, but both of the women who probably would know say this is the first instance in which the victim was alleged to have been violent. So, taking all of that together, you've got enough, if just barely, to support the aggressor instruction in this case.
2: Now, Mr. Hyde, about the violent, our violence argument, wasn't there testimony by both um, the defendant and the decedent's wife that his behavior had changed within the last week and he'd become excessively aggressive and angry? and that was the co- point of the conversation that both the, uh, dis- the decedent's wife and the defendant had?
0: Uh, I think there is evidence that he was angry. I'm not sure there's any evidence that he was more violent as a result of that. This is not a person that was known for violence. There was no evidence presented that he had a violent character. In fact, both his wife and the defendant testified that he'd never been violent before. So there, I think you're right, Your Honor, there was evidence that he had, there were, they were witnessing some changes to his character. But I, I do that a correlation
2: there, to his excessive use of methamphetamine?
0: It's possible. It's certainly possible. I, I don't think there was any expert testimony on that, but maybe. In terms of what evidence there was to support the aggressor instruction though, the court can look to the fact that the two women who apparently know this victim best, don't have any prior, uh, prior history, prior examples to, to, to indicate that this was a violent person. So that cuts against the suggestion that um, the victim was the aggressor and, and, and supports the testimony, although not the story the defendant told to, to the police, because she, <laughs> she gave a few different inconsistent stories here. But what she said at trial was that uh, the victim had picked up the gun and was leaving the room When she told him to come back and leave the gun. So, whichever story you choose to believe, there was inconsistent evidence about who was the aggressor. That's a question that properly went to the jury for a determination. Now the aggressor instruction is um, the only one of the three issues here that was actually preserved. Um, Judge Inman, you asked opposing counsel about invited error, and there's, there's an argument about invited error, actually with regard to both of the remaining issues. The second issue has to do with the uh, handful of sexually explicit photographs. And then the third issue, as I understand it, is the more comprehensive um, introduction of all of the text messages, messages, videos, um, communication back and forth. that was presented to the jury. I think it is worth pointing out that opposing counsel started her presentation with a, a recitation of the facts taken entirely from those text messages. Um, that was the argument for their admission at trial. They, they demonstrated the relationship, they contextualized this fatal event. So it's not a little ironic that she would base her factual presentation on those text messages and argue at the same time that they were admitted in error. Those messages were relevant and admissible because they showed That relationship that gave rise to the fatal event.
2: Mr. Hyde, how is it relevant to the uh, case at hand to have the detective read aloud text messages from Christopher to his mother asking if he can get a physical on Thursday or get out early to earn some money? How is that relevant to the case?
0: Um. I, and, admit, and I could
2: go on ad nauseum, but that's just one example. How how are those text messages that don't involve any of the parties in this case relevant?
0: Well, I think your honor has chosen particularly pointed examples. Some of that is definitely more relevant than others. But under this court's case law, under the Supreme Court and this court's case law, that's Hill and Hope. Um, the probative value of the evidence need not bear directly on elements of the offense. Um, Well, the are the ones about. that recognize that evidence is admissible, which gives a broader context for the relationship um, that that led to the, the fatal event. In this case, the shooting that the defendant shot the victim. So yes, there were included in some of those uh, text messages that didn't pertain directly to the relationship between the victim and the defendant, but I would say to the extent that those that evidence was not relevant, it also, there's no way that it was prejudicial because it has no bearing on whether the defendant is guilty of, of murder or not.
2: Well, how were the text messages that involved uh, the defendant and her having sex with other men relevant to this particular case?
0: Well, those photographs were particularly relevant because, and I think opposing counsel has, has acknowledged this in her brief, those photographs went directly to the threat um, that defendant made to expose those photographs to the victim's wife. Um I would point this port to the case, uh, Shannon. there's been suggestion that these were, you know sexually, there, there's no doubt they were sexually explicit photographs, but Shannon is another case in which sexually explicit photographs were introduced. In Shannon, uh, three photographs from the swingers party were admitted by the trial court. One photograph showing defendant wearing lingerie. Uh, another exhibit depicting defendant nude having vaginal sex with another individual. Exhibit 126 showed defendant wearing a gl- black garter belt having vaginal sex while defendant held an, uh, another man's penis. And in Shannon, this court held that th- that evidence was properly admitted and was not unduly prejudicial. So just to go through, first of all, defendant didn't object to this evidence. Secondly, to the extent that there is an objection here uh, argument on appeal that this was admitted in error, it has to be under Rule 403, that the prejudicial value outweighed the probative value. That tends to be a determination that's in the discretion of the trial court. So this is a very deferential review, particularly when the defendant didn't object to the evidence at trial. So under under both of those scenarios, when you do have the relevance as demonstrated by Shannon, I don't think there's any way that this court can find that the admission of those photographs was more prejudicial than it was probative. Those photographs, in particular, went directly to the relationship between the defendant and the victim. And in some measure, illustrated the reason why there was a conflict uh, between the defendant and the victim over the the defendant's threat to expose those pictures to the victim's wife.
2: Mr. Hyde, I understand that argument. I was actually asking about the text messages that the defendant had with her girlfriend, where she was talking about having sex with other men.
0: Oh, Okay, so we're on the third issue. (laughs) There's a little bit of confusion because I feel like those issues are kind of uh, nestled one inside of the other. The third issue is one where the defendant uh, herself requested the additional extraction from her cell phone, right? So, so to back up and discuss preservation for just a moment, um, that's a situation where the, the state had pulled all of this data from her cell phone, that information had been discovered to the defendant, and then the defendant actually went back and requested an additional extraction of data and the defendant um, explained her position for the trial court on whether all of those, that data should come in saying she wasn't objecting. This was on page, on page 1727. I'm not going to object, I'm not going to object. I didn't object, it's already in evidence. I asked the court to enter an extraction to be performed yesterday. So for better or for worse, I'm the one who caused the extraction. I don't think I'm in a position to object to it. There are things in there that I'm going to be using. So, yes, there is some question as to some of those text messages being relevant, but this is, this is evidence that not only did the defendant not object, the defendant actually asked that this come in. If anything, was it leave aside the sex pictures, right? Just saying no objection, constitute invited error, that's a tricky question. This is a question. This is a situation where the defendant herself wanted this evidence to come in. This so is invited saying, error.
1: Assuming that this is invited error, and I don't think this is in the briefs. Um is there any doubt in your mind that Ms. Hicks has um an IAC claim?
0: I, I don't believe she has an IAC claim at all, Your Honor. I, I'm not sure what an IAC claim would be would be based on here. I mean, attorneys can be expected to make strategic arguments, uh strategic decisions. Sometimes those work out, sometimes they don't. But That's but fair.
1: But isn't that what, I mean, isn't that what, I mean, surely at the appellate level, we don't speculate on, you know, if you can't tell from the cold record, we don't, we don't speculate. Often cases go back to a trial court for a motion for appropriate relief. And the trial court is the better place to explore that. I understand this defense counsel is deceased, so we're not going to find out. I'm not aware
0: of that. I don't believe that's
1: in the record, but, okay, just said that, but regardless of that. Um, you don't think this would, this would, you don't, you don't think this would be an IC claim.
0: The introduction of the, of the data extraction? This was relevant to the story of, of this offense. Ms. Ozer started her presentation with the story derived from the text messages. All of that evidence (laughs) goes to why these two people were fighting on that particular morning.
2: So Mr. Hyde, just so I understand your argument, you're not contending that just because the, Information is extracted that all of it has to be introduced to the trial court. No, no,
0: absolutely not. No,
2: because it seems as if that is the big um, contention of the defendant is that all of the data that was extracted was that was was dumped was given to the trial court for them to look
0: request at defendants own request. As defendant trial counsel said, I'm going to be using some of that. If the story was beneficial to the state, the story was also beneficial to the defendant, because that was, in fact, what happened. That is the relationship between the defendant and the victim. There are different inferences that can be drawn from that, but there's just as much uh, uh, damning evidence against the victim as there is damning against the defendant there. So th- there's. <laughs> This wasn't poor strategy on behalf of defense counsel this was a strategic decision that counsel made to allow that evidence in because it's the best evidence of the relationship between these two people. With that
2: aside how is the evidence or how is the information that is shared between the defendant and her children or the defendant and her girlfriend or the defendant and her mom how is that relevant to this case and why should that have been presented to the jury?
0: Uh, yeah, like I said, I think some of it is more relevant than other, uh, some, some parts of it are more relevant than others. Your Honor. I, I can't say specifically how the, the conversation with her children was particularly relevant. I do think there was a suggestion here that had the state chosen to pick certain parts and pieces out of this and presented, you know, this happened on one day and then four days later this happened. Uh, if I was a defense attorney, I would say, you know, why didn't the state tell you what happened in between? So, so, there is a benefit of, of sort of a comprehensive presentation, but I'm hard pressed to suggest that there's any direct relevance to the conversation she had with her children. I'm not going to get up here and, and say that there was. Um, if I might return to the. Mr. Hyde, this, before we move on, I, I just wanted to, to clarify, I was just double checking the brief. There was no IAC argument raised in, in the brief, correct?
1: That's correct. Yes, as ma'am. an
0: officer of the court, are you aware of? Any case where we have Suis addressed IAC? I'm not aware of such a case, Your Honor. Thank you, Michelle. Um, I'd like to return briefly to the aggressor instruction because uh, there was, in fact, evidence, circumstantial evidence to support that aggressor instruction. But even if this court were to find that the evidence was not sufficient to support the aggressor instruction, I think defendant has a little bit of a problem here with the prejudice prong. Um, Our Supreme Court in a case called Reed, and citing back to another case called Potter, recognized that the aggressor instruction is relevant to voluntary manslaughter. The way the mechanics of this instruction work, the jury is asked to determine first whether the defendant had a reasonable belief in the need to use deadly force. If she did, if it finds self-defense, then it's asked to consider whether it's perfect self-defense or imperfect self-defense imperfect self-defense being excessive force or if the defendant was the aggressor. And the instruction goes on to explain if the jury is to find the defendant had reasonable belief in the need to use deadly force, was using self-defense, but was the aggressor, then that leads you, that targets you to a verdict of voluntary manslaughter. So that's why you get these cases uh, relied on by the defendant where the jury convicts the defendant of voluntary manslaughter And this court finds that the aggressor instruction was prejudicial. You also have cases um, involving assault, felony assault, because imperfect self-defense is not a defense to a crime other than murder, other than a homicide. So in that circumstance, there's no imperfect self-defense. Finding the defendant as aggressor leads you directly to guilt. I don't think defendant cites a single murder case, not a single one. Where the defendant was convicted of murder and an appellate court found prejudicial error in the giving of an aggressor instruction. The reason for that is as described in Reed, Reed and Potter, because, sorry, Reed and Potter, <laughs> Incidentally, the same result is reached in Jimenez, which is a case cited in a defendant's brief, and also MUMA, although they don't spell it out with quite the same nicety. An aggressor instruction is relevant to a finding of voluntary manslaughter. A defendant who is not convicted of voluntary manslaughter or a felony assault for which imperfect self-defense is not a defense, would not have been prejudiced by the aggressor instruction. In this case, the jury necessarily rejected the suggestion the defendant had a reasonable belief in the need to use deadly force. That leads you to murder, not to an acquittal. So the upshot is even if it was error, we, we, we've settled that you don't view the evidence in the light favorable to the defendant. I think there's still an argument about whether there's evidence here to support the aggressor instruction, although there's a handful of factors that support that instruction. But even if there weren't, there's no way this defendant was prejudiced by that instruction because this defendant was not convicted of manslaughter. This defendant was convicted of second-degree murder. Which means the jury never reached the question of whether she was the aggressor.
1: Well, Mr. Hyde, there's just one argument that you made in your brief that I haven't heard you mention and don't need to hear you argue about. I just want to To note it and ask if maybe you've sort of reevaluated it, Um, you argued in your brief. That um, that the defendant failed to preserve. This objection to the aggressive aggressive aggressor, excuse me. Instruction um, as a constitutional issue and that we can't even review that for plain error. Um, you haven't mentioned it, so I didn't know if you were backing off of that.
0: No, absolutely not. Your Honor. I'm, I'm not backing off of that at all. Um, I didn't hear opposing counsel raise any constitutional issue. I, I assume perhaps defendant had abandoned it. As it perhaps should be abandoned, because there was no constitutional issue raised at trial and there's no con- consequently no constitutional issue for this court to decide on appeal the defendant responds in the reply brief that. Well, every instructional issue is a due process claim. If every instructional issue was a due process claim, that means every instructional issue that's raised in the cases would require the state to present evidence that the error was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. That's not what happens at all. That's not what happens at all. An argument that an instruction is a constitutional error is not constitutionalized unless the defendant makes a constitutional issue at trial. The cases the defendant cites for that, it's a US Supreme Court case called Sandstrom. Um, and then there's another and def- defendant's reply brief. Um, those dealt with instruction. Let me see if I can find it.
1: You don't need to, you know, I, I didn't mean to ask you to go down this path and, and it's been covered in the briefs. So no, you don't,
0: you know. Well, I would like to say this if, if you don't mind, her, because I, I did not directly respond to, to, to those particular citations. But Sandstrom and White, which appears on page 10 of the defendant's reply brief, those cases deal with instructions that um, invited the jury to make presumptions, either mandatory presumptions or permissive presumptions. In other words, there were cases where an instruction allowed the jury to infer or to imply uh, certain elements had been met, even absent any any evidence presented by the state. And the US Supreme Court and our Supreme Court said, well, it might have a constitutional problem in that circumstance because the the burden remains on the state to present beyond a reasonable doubt evidence to support each element of the offense. But if you go back and look at the jury instruction here, for for all of the times that the trial court used the word aggressor, and I think opposing counsel is suggesting those are separate aggressor instructions, although they're really just one instruction saying, saying over and over again, but for all of the times that the trial court used the word aggressor, It said again and again, the burden is on the state. The burden is on the state to show that the defendant did not act in self-defense. The burden is on the state to show that the the defendant was the aggressor. So even if, and and certainly there are certain circumstances where an instruction might raise due process constitutional problems, where where it's inviting the jury or directing the jury to make a presumption, that is not what happened here. The constitutional issue was not raised, it's waived, and even if it were raised, it's merit. Thank you. If there are no further questions, uh, the state would respectfully ask this court to find no error at trial.